as you were talking about earlier, the recent Bush Supreme Court's decisions really took away uh, critically important decisions from women and put them in the hands of politicians. And as a result of this, we're expecting and have already seen so much anti-choice legislation at the state level. Um, what would you do at the federal level, not only to ensure access to abortion, but to make sure that the uh, judicial nominees that you will inevitably be able to pick are true to the core tenets of Roe v. Wade? Well, the first thing I'd do as president is, is sign the Freedom of Choice Act. One of my favorite tweets of all time says, well, 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 if it isn't the consequences of my own actions. The following is brought to you by Will Harris, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Dog and Pony Show Audio. Before we begin, there's a few things that we need to establish. First, and probably most importantly, is that the United States of America is a representative democracy and the will of the people guide the decisions being made by the government. In my decades being a political nerd and half a decade creating content on this issue, I do fundamentally and unironically believe that politicians are scared, weak creatures who desperately fear losing their jobs. They need voters to maintain those jobs. And more than donors, lobbyists, the media, or any other nefarious boogeyman, they fear us. Second, is that abortion is a highly contentious issue with either side looking at it as a case of literal life and death. For pro-life supporters, they believe it is state-sanctioned murder of an unborn child. For pro-choice supporters, they believe that the private decisions of a woman on the subject of reproduction are sacrosanct and need to be protected as a human right. But beyond the draconian polls are a myriad complicating shades of gray. Chief among them, by what time frame or biological marker does a pregnant woman have a human life within her? Do laws criminalizing abortion infringe on healthcare decisions by doctors that could, among other things, lead to a woman dying from a miscarried fetus which needs to be removed? And what of women who become involuntarily pregnant, specifically by way of crimes, we offer our harshest penalties as a society, including rape, and even worse, rape from a family member? None of this is simple. All of this is loud. Today we find it the center of a gathering storm as women and men argue the question of abortion, the right to life, or the woman's right to choose. Roe versus White is going to the Supreme Court. I don't know how to measure the beginning of life except at the point of conception. And that this is a right that no state should be allowed to abridge. I believe that... Uh, women should have the right to choose. On January 22nd, 1973, Roe v. Wade was decided in the Supreme Court in favor of protecting a woman's right to choose in states which would otherwise criminalize it. For the benefit of this podcast, I am not going to parse the legal arguments of Roe v. Wade. 
Our friend Andrew Heaton on his podcast, The Political Orphanage, did an excellent deep dive into this after the Alito decision that eventually reversed Roe was leaked. I encourage you to listen to it as a companion to this episode, but quite frankly, I find the jurisprudential argument about this to be kind of beside the point to what I want to get into. What I want to get into is looking at this issue from the political reality then as we know it now, which is that Roe versus Wade was a ticking time bomb, a barrier that would have been erased either from a million legal holes or, as it happened last week, total reversal. Based on where America was before that decision came down, we can accurately look at Roe versus Wade as a lopsided compromise in favor of the pro-choice argument. And that crowd had damn near 50 years to put this into law so they wouldn't have to rely on that compromise. Quite simply, they didn't. And this episode is going to largely focus on two legislative moments that would have averted the disorienting loss of political gravity that we are all now feeling. Both occurred while the majority of you, the listeners, were politically aware. You might know about both. Or one. Or neither. If either of the last two are the case, I encourage you to listen to the end. Because I want you to ask yourself the question. Why? For Dog and Pony Show Audio, this is Politics, Politics, Politics. My name is Justin Robert Young. That clip at the very beginning of this podcast was from then-candidate Barack Obama speaking to Planned Parenthood while he was running for president in 2008. That specific event also featured this gem. When the real war is being fought abroad, they would have us fight culture wars here at home. But I am absolutely convinced that culture wars are just so 90s. Oof. Boy, between that and the 80s called they want their foreign policy back in relation to Mitt Romney's fear of Russia. I think it's safe to say that Barry's declaration of dead issues hasn't exactly aged well. As we all know, Barack Obama won that election, and two weeks before his inauguration, the 111th United States Congress was sworn in, gifting him an albeit brief, but real, 60-40 to filibuster-proof majority in the Senate, as well as control of the House. But it was shortly into his tenure that his support of the Freedom of Choice Act Change. The Freedom of Choice Act is not my highest legislative priority. I believe that uh, women should have the right to choose, uh, but uh, I think that uh, the most important thing we can do to tamp down some of the, um, the anger surrounding this issue uh, is to focus on those areas that we can agree on, uh, and that's, uh, that's where I'm going to focus. Before we go any further, let's break down what the Freedom of Choice Act actually was. 
Well, th- there were a few different versions, but this is the one that Obama was referring to in both of those clips uh, and one that he eventually sponsored as a senator. In its statement of policy, it says that the policy of the United States is that every woman has the fundamental right to choose to bear a child, to terminate a pregnancy prior to fetal viability, or to terminate a pregnancy after fetal viability when necessary to protect the life or health of the woman. It furthermore went on to set civil penalties if a woman was denied her rights, she could effectively sue the government. So, what changed? What went from Barack Obama, the senator, sponsoring this bill, which would effectively codify Roe versus Wade, to winning the presidency, having the opportunity to do it, and deciding not to? Well, let's bring you into the heady world of early 2009. Obama did face tremendous pressure from the religious right, including a collection of Catholic bishops who were not only staunchly pro-life, but also stoked fears that the law would force Catholic hospitals to conduct abortions. Worth mentioning that focus supporters did not believe that would be the case, and similar arguments would be revived when Obamacare came around. And Let's talk about Obamacare, because in my view, Obama had limited political capital. And when it came down to it, codifying something that many Democrats already believed would be around forever was not as impressive or legacy building in getting over the hump on something that American liberals have wanted for long before I was born some level of guaranteed health care. It is also worth mentioning that Obama didn't pay much of a political price for this because it is democratic mainstream thought at this time and indeed most times leading up to last Friday that Roe versus Wade would be there forever. It's not to say that people haven't raised the alarm bells. They certainly have. And Democrats have done a lot to keep it front and center. But have they? I mean, the Democrats have certainly told you that Roe was on the brink. They have told you that Roe is on the ballot. And some of you might blanch at me saying that the Democrats thought that Roe would last forever. After all, you were told repeatedly that it was in danger. But at this moment, back in 2009, when the problem could be fixed, it wasn't. So now in hindsight, what choice do we have but to assume that the public posturing for decades was not the same as the private strategy? specifically? Roe drives votes and will drive votes forever because it will always be around. I'm going to get into more of this later, but I think it is not only safe, not only fair, but appropriate to put that on his record. It does not tarnish whatever else you think about him. It only holds him to account for an opportunity that he had that didn't come to fruition. And one that, as I talk to you now for the pro-choice audience, 
has grave consequences. Now, I want to flash forward a little bit into 2013. House Bill 1797. It is entitled the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act. South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham moving the abortion debate back into the spotlight in the wake of the Kermit Gosnell case, unveiling landmark new legislation moments ago to ban late-term abortions. When it comes to abortion going into the sixth month of pregnancy, because the child is pain-capable, the state has a compelling interest in protecting that unborn child apart from medical viability. A Quinnipiac poll shows 55% of Americans favor the 20-week ban, and where the results are split by gender, the number grew to 60% of women who favor it. Okay. Okay. Pause. Pause here. Obviously, this is Republican legislation. We are now past the point where Obama has a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate, and the Republicans control the House. But let's move a little further into what a pro-life bill in 2013 looked like less than 10 years ago. Requires the physician to first determine the probable post-fertilization age of the unborn child or reasonably rely on such a determination made by another physician by making inquiries of the pregnant woman and performing such medical examinations and tests as a reasonably prudent physician would consider necessary. Prohibits the abortion from being performed if the probable post-fertilization age of the unborn child is 20 weeks or greater. Except, where necessary to save the life of a pregnant woman whose life is endangered by a physical disorder, illness, or injury, excluding psychological or emotional conditions. Two, where the pregnancy is the result of rape or the result of incest against a minor. If the rape has been reported at any time prior to the abortion to an appropriate law enforcement agency, and if the incest has been reported at any time prior to the abortion to an appropriate law enforcement agency or to a government agency legally authorized to act on reports of child abuse or neglect. Okay, so let's break down exactly what we just heard there. Abortion, legal, nationwide, on demand, up to 20 weeks. That is into the second trimester. Second trimester abortions are far rarer than first trimester abortion. And many of the exceptions to that rule happen to fall in to stuff like health of the mother, which, by the way, is guaranteed in this law. So is rape. So is incest. You can get an abortion later than 20 weeks if you have reported either of those acts to a law enforcement officer. Now, that's something that some people would take exception with. And indeed, this bill was going nowhere in Harry Reid's Senate. Again, because why take a deal less than Roe versus Wade? Which is, as we all know, in 2013, gonna last forever. Versions of this bill have been a priority for Lindsey Graham throughout the years. Here he is bringing it back up in early 2019. Uh, it's called the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act. 
It would provide common sense protections for unborn children at 20 weeks after fertilization, a point at which there is significant scientific evidence that abortion inflicts tremendous pain on the unborn child. For whatever you think of Lindsey Graham, and I would personally describe his convictions to be malleable. There is no doubt that this bill was backed by the pro-life organizations. In fact, it was National Right to Life that crafted the framework to this bill that then went to various different state houses and eventually, unsuccessfully, to Washington, D.C. Here is the then president of the organization saying just as much. Obviously, with the understanding that this was not a codification of Roe versus Wade, this would have set a line in the sand on when an on-demand abortion could be asked for for any reason. It was not going to happen with there being any kind of democratic control. But now that we're on the other side of Roe's disillusion, let's take a look back at exactly how many of the abortions that were happening at the time and are happening now, it would have protected. According to Planned Parenthood, citing CDC statistics, this law would have covered the vast majority of abortions in the United States. Again, this is Planned Parenthood citing the CDC. To quote them directly, The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that 65% of legal abortions occur within the first eight weeks of gestation, 91% are performed within the first 13 weeks, and only 1.4% occur at or after 21 weeks. 1.4%. And you have to wonder how many of those would have fallen into the exceptions that were laid out. This bill protected federally, nationwide, for 20 weeks, and it was backed by the pro-life movement. A reminder that the Mississippi State Bill at the heart of the Roe decision cut abortion on demand off at 15 weeks. A Texas law set that bar even lower at eight. Of course, that was before the Roe decision. Now, 13 states have trigger laws that are either in place or about to become in place that will ban them outright. You want to know what? I I got an idea. I wonder if I read this to somebody that I know for sure is super pro-choice, if they would think this is a good idea. I got the perfect person. Mom, gonna be quick. I wanted to ask you what you thought about the the Roe versus Wade stuff. Oh God, I think that's a a terribly tragic decision and direction for our country. It's just it's 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 bad news that it went away. It was better that we had that we had we had that settled. Well. I mean, you know, this is it's very clear that abortions are not going to stop just because no. they changed the law. Yeah. And, you know, it just means that the um, you know, that there are going to be so many more people who are doing it improperly, 
you know, people are going to die. Women will die. Babies will die. There'll be more people dying as a result of this than, than if it were just kept in place and done properly. Um, I, I just, you know, I can still remember as a young girl when the law was passed. And oh, was, wow. How old were you? you know, I was like 12, 13 years old. You know, I was just a young girl. And I remember, you know, wondering what was the big deal? Because I didn't understand about abortion and all of that at yeah. that age. And, um, you know, I, I just never really understood why was it such a monumental thing. And, um, you know, now, of course, I have a completely different idea and opinion about it. But, you know, I'm I'm totally pro-choice. And I think every woman has the right to make the decision about her body and her future. And, you know, as long as it's done at a time when the the fetus or the embryo is still of a, you know, a very early age, I don't think of it as murder. Yeah. Did, did, did you hear about this, uh, this, this bill in Congress that they're talking about? No, I it, haven't. It's a uh, 20 weeks. Uh, uh, so that puts it into the, the second trimester. Trimester. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, there's carve outs for rape incest and, and uh, health yeah. and, and, and health of the mother. And, and yeah. And even health of the, the baby. I mean, yeah, you know, a lot yeah, of yeah. The, 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 yeah. The fetal, just, the fetal viability and fetal viability, yeah. I think is in, in uh, even some of the more draconian ones, but, but what do you think about that bill? I, I think that would be excellent. I mean, honestly, I think 20 weeks is even more than it needs to be. What if I, I told you that that bill was written by national right to life and has been in Congress since 2013 and is a Republican bill. It, it last was brought up in 2019. Uh, honestly, I think that's, that's amazing. And it's, that's great. I mean, then it should be bipartisan. <laughs> Isn't it kind of crazy that that wasn't looked at as, as a compromise on this? Yeah. I, I don't understand why. I mean, honestly, uh, that's why I say even 20 weeks is a little bit more than I think is necessary. Isn't, isn't it crazy? That was written by the pro-life lobby. <laughs> Un, unbelievable. And the and the Republicans put it out in 2013? Yeah. 2019. Lindsey Graham put it out in, in 2019. Wow. I'm blown away. Are they bringing that bill back up? No, I'm I'm doing a whole thing about how I think that we're not as divided on this as I think we think we are. As everybody thinks they are. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Thanks, Mom. She's the best. Isn't she, folks? Anyway. A bill that would have protected the vast majority of on-demand abortions and enshrined exceptions beyond that to protect the health of the mother as well as rape and incest was championed by a pro-life organization and never saw a vote in the Senate. I believe that both of the bills we discussed here didn't pass because abortion as an issue is a profitable utility to political parties and their attendant organizations who maintain relevance by arguing about it. 
Essentially, the Democrats could reject anything less than what they had because Roe is Roe. And meanwhile, Republicans could counter Roe it isn't. It's Groundhog Day, and make no mistake, Roe is on the ballot. The headlines create eye-popping fundraising totals. The fear it sparks in voters electrifies them to the polls. Now, I would like to make a personal word on this subject. Myself, Justin Robert Young, I've never been forced to make the decision with anyone to terminate a pregnancy. I've been around several men and some women who have. It was for them a deeply personal decision that largely centered around the reality that they were too young and or irresponsible to raise a child. Furthermore, I've lived the vast majority of my life in very liberal areas. South Florida, New York City, the college town of Syracuse, and then the Bay Area. My current hometown of Austin, Texas, the cool blue center of a deep red state, is by far the most culturally conservative area I've lived in, and that's saying something. I say that all to point out that the vast majority of my friends and family are liberal. If there are any of my close friends and family that are staunchly pro-life, I don't remember the conversation where they brought it up. It is to my pro-choice friends, family, and listeners that I'd like to speak to first. Roe is gone. It's over. You lost. The politicians who told you they would do something didn't. They kicked the can down the road, assuming a controversial legal precedent would last forever. You can call it reckless, callous, or any number of adjectives. The good news is, is that those words start getting really spicy. You can be assured that you are on stage two of the famous five stages of grief. Anger. That's the one that comes after denial but before bargaining depression and then finally acceptance. And I would encourage you to get to that final level as soon as possible because it will greatly behoove you to focus on the future. Because I repeat, Roe is gone. The head start evaporated. If what you truly want is to protect the vast majority of elective abortion on demand and carve-outs in local law to protect the health of the mother as well as rape and incest, then the only path forward is legislation that compromises on something less than what Roe provided. If you believe that that is only a start, then I would encourage you to fight for more as you go forward. The bugaboo for all legislation is letting the perfect be the enemy of good. But the good here is something that you literally believe is life and death. To hold out for perfect is to permit death. This is going to require softening of some tribal loyalties, by the way. Because the people who will be most affected are not... Liberals in blue states where abortion will now be protected, but rather 
oftentimes liberals or conservatives in red states, like the women here in Austin. I would encourage you to demand action from your politicians. Do not allow yourselves to be gaslit by talking points that seek to protect the image of civil servants. They will always blame the villainous others, the liars and cheats whom you will never defend because you don't agree with. And I'm not asking you to find humanity in your political enemies. I am asking you to demand a solution to this problem from the people you do agree with. There will be debate on exactly what those solutions are. Like I started this podcast, the shades of gray here are far more complicated than our bumper sticker politics on this issue would lead you to believe. Some of them I find more urgent than others. For example, I don't quite get the urge to simultaneously declare the Supreme Court illegitimate while also demanding we add more seats to it. Because based on the Democratic record on this subject, would anybody be surprised that if we packed the court today, the same voices calling for it would be on the same Sunday talk shows in five years decrying the 10-3 conservative majority? Protect what you can. As for the pro-lifers, many of whom I've met as I've done this podcast. Good luck. It's one thing to storm the castle. It's still another to govern with laws like these in our modern political climate. The trigger laws that have either taken effect or will take effect within the next two weeks were largely crafted by an evangelical minority of your party for whom access to abortion is a key motivating factor. The public consensus on issues like health of the mother, rape, and incest will likely fall to the left of those laws, even in deep red states. But that's just the political side. That's not living with and enforcing these laws. Because the names and faces that fall between the cracks on them will be as heartbreaking as they are famous. And by the way, I offer you the same piece of advice I gave to the pro-choice crowd. Roe is gone. This is no longer a legal argument about a flawed decision. This is real. This is yours. And I have as much faith in your politicians to understand the nuances as I do in the liberal ones to find consensus and compromise. If within your worldview, you believe that there is anything past conception where abortion is appropriate, be it 6, 8, 15, or 20 weeks, your voice will be crucial. In fact, dare I say, the people for whom agree that there should be some number of weeks to allow an elective abortion is the majority of America. And now that Roe is gone, we're free of that dynamic that held us inside of its confines. According to a Pew Research poll conducted after the leak of the decision to overturn Roe, one third of respondents said specifically that life begins at conception. That's 70% that believes it's not. 56% said that there should be a length of time in which a woman should be allowed to get an abortion. And in some cases, after that, it should be illegal. 
Combine that with the 31% who believe the length of time a woman is pregnant should not matter, and you have an overwhelming majority that is ripe for compromise around fetal viability. Specifically, if you didn't agree with Roe, you were pro-life. And if you did, you were pro-choice. Now that that's gone, we have the freedom to form a larger coalition which can reshape politics on this issue on a city, state, and federal level. But if you don't believe that any of what I've just mentioned is appropriate, that life begins at conception. There should be no exceptions. And that these current trigger laws are exactly to your liking. Well, you don't have to do much. But I do offer you yet another scoop of good luck. But for everybody, of all stripes, I do offer the following. Please, please, please treat your politicians by the Janet Jackson rule of thumb. What have you done for me lately? Tell them what to do and hold them to it. Do not be emotionally controlled by the fear of the unknown. Create a culture of utility. When they tell you that this is going to have to wait for another election, ask why. If the answer isn't satisfactory, criticize them and do it harshly. They owe it to you. America is a representative democracy. Abortion is a highly charged topic with myriad shades of gray. And when you get beyond the slogans, there is room for compromise that most Americans agree on, even if they're not happy with it. The question that remains now, as the clock has run out on Roe, is what do we think is more important? The reputation and fundraising of our civil servants or what we agree to be the prudent direction of our country. Well, then it seems likely the opposing forces will continue to do battle for many Mother's Days to come. Politics, Politics, Politics has been written and recorded by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. You can email the show, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter, px3tweets. You can find me on Twitch Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at px3live. Share this podcast with your friends and family and clergy at px3podcast.com. You can also find our merch at politicsmerch.com. If you would like to support us with a one-time donation, you can do so. PayPal.me slash payjury. Our Venmo is justin-young-20. You can hit us up on Cash App, PX3Cash, and any kind of physical checks you can send to me in the mail. P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Of course, you can always get our bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. The $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcast schedule. And our $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the podcast like we do for these fine folks in our Titanic $10 tier. 
Vigard, Alexis, Neil of Neils, MC Dradio, Unsafe DB Levels, Katie, Double K Ranch, Amanda, Yield Pinball Shop, John, DP4 Bongo, Niemeister, Nick's Horseless Diner, Catherine, Persons Familiar with the Matter, and Vote Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, 100 Mile Runner, Edison, Up Down. Up, down, left, right, left, right, B.A. Start, Dr. G, Headphones, Neil, Charles, Darren, Idris Arslandian, Blue Front, and the Lanina, D.L., Stephen, Chad, Nomadic Terran, Diana Shrill Shrieks, Miranda Janelle, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul is awesome, Brad, Richard D. Laser, Just Another Pilot, Middle-Aged Mike, Utah, Jimmy Montana, The Gen, Adam L., D. Really, Chopper, J. Pink, Andrew, and Joshua. If you'd like your name on that list, the place to head is TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Back to normal episodes next week. Thank you to everybody who has listened. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with your friends and family. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics and still more discuss politics, but this is the only show that dares discuss all three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs) Dog and Pony Show Audio.